Good evening, everyone. Good to see you here. Thanks for coming back this evening. Uh, appreciate our brother for singing Psalm 4 tonight, and uh, that was from the Psalter. And uh, so I appreciate that. You may wonder, you may not have noticed, but we skipped Psalm 3. Uh, that was intentional because Psalm 3 is written out of a, an historical event that we're going to be studying as we work our way through 2 Samuel. So when I get to that section of 2 Samuel, we will go back and pick up Psalm 3 and talk about its relevance to the events that we look at in that morning. So tonight we're on Psalm 4. I have the uh, Psalms provide us with a wonderful consideration of theology. Theology is the study of God, most literally. And theology is often entered into by a wooden consideration of the attributes of God. It is begun by asking the question, who is God? It's answered by saying that God is just, good, holy, merciful, etc., and talking about his attributes. Theology also focuses upon God's decrees. God's decrees are his determined purposes and actions. In Psalm 4, we have a practical study of theology. Practical in the sense that it takes a <coughs> theological issue and presents its relevance for everyday life. Let me just say here that all theology should be practical. It all should be relevant. Uh, these are not just doctrines to learn and uh, be able to uh, uh, spit out, but they are immensely practical. They affect the way we think, they affect the way we act. So, it takes a theological issue and presents its relevance for us today. This evening, we have a practical consideration of the doctrines of election and sanctification. Although neither one of those words appear in this psalm, uh, that is the basis of this psalm, the doctrine of election and sanctification. It's found in these words. God has set apart the godly for himself. So what does that mean in practical terms? How is my life affected by knowing that God has set me apart for himself? What is that relevance? The key verse is Psalm 4, verse 3. But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. So the theme is, what are the responses that we should have to the truth that God has set us apart for himself? Well, knowing that God has set me apart for himself should it produce in me three things. First, confidence in prayer. Second, carefulness in living. And then thirdly, contentedness in my circumstances. And we'll work our way through this psalm seeing these three points. First of all, knowing that God has set me apart for himself brings confidence in prayer. Psalm verse 3 says, But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. Know that, understand it. Learn to apply it. And then here is the first application of that truth. The Lord hears when I call to him. He hears me because he has set me apart for himself. So the confidence in prayer stems from a confidence in God's relationship to us. And that word order is very important. That is, I did not say the confidence in prayer stems from my relationship to God but it stems from God's relationship to us. He initiates that relationship and he keeps that relationship. That's why it's so important and that's what gives us confidence in prayer. So, we are confident in prayer because we are confident that God accepts us as righteous. 
Psalm 4, verse 1, David appeals to God and says, Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. David expects God to answer when he calls because God is the God of David's righteousness. David does not plead his own righteousness, but God's righteousness. Verse 1, O God of my righteousness. David is doing more than pleading God's righteousness in the abstract. Because God has set apart David, David is righteous. And I now just uh, gave you four uh, translations here. The first is the uh, ESV, O God of my righteousness. The second is the NAS, O God of my righteousness. The King James, O God of my righteousness. And then the NIV that says, O my righteous God. Now, I hope you catch that that's quite a change in nuance. Three, David has confidence in prayer because David views himself as a possessor of God's own righteousness. In the first three translations, when it says, O God of my righteousness, it's talking about the source of David's righteousness. David views himself as righteous because God has set him apart. It is because of God's activity that David is righteous. The NIV uh, is intended to be a translation that is not overly literal and is intended to communicate basic truths. It shoots for being more understandable, making things clear. And sometimes when you make things quote-unquote clear, you oversimplify to the point where you no longer are really accurate. And here's one of those instances. It is true that God is righteous. Nobody's going to argue that one. Uh, oh, my righteous God, God is indeed righteous. And let me just say another important point. As we talk about expository preachings, we talk about ex exegeting the scripture. It's important that we understand the text that we are in, and we get the points from the text that we are in. For oftentimes, people will say things that are biblical, they will say things that are true, but that doesn't come out of that text. So you can hear a message, and it can be a fine message, because what it says is true, but it may not have anything to do with the text that has been read and is explained. So here, it's talking about the fact that God is the source of David's righteousness. Application. Thomas Jefferson said, and I quote, I fear for my country when I think that God is just. The psalmist said in verse 3 of Psalm 130, If you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, O Lord, who could stand? So let me just unpack this for you a little bit more. If we're going to have confidence in prayer, we have to have confidence that the Lord's going to hear me, that I have a right standing before God. And if you think that your standing is based on your goodness, you're not going to have a lot of confidence. Either you're going to question, is God going to hear me because you know the things that you've done and you say to yourself, I'm out of fellowship with God, and so I'm going to confess my sin, but how do you know you confessed it all? 
all right? Or you're going to develop a self-righteousness that says, I'm fine, I never sin, I never do anything wrong, God's going to hear my prayer because I'm a good guy. I deserve to be heard. This is entirely different. David is not pleading his righteousness. David is pleading God's righteousness. But not just God's righteousness in the abstract. He's not just saying, oh God, you're a righteous God. He's saying, God, you are the source of my righteousness. You have made me righteous. Therefore, hear and answer my prayer. David is deserving of being heard. But the deservedness doesn't come from himself. The deservedness comes from the righteous God who has made him righteous. Next, we are confident in prayer because God is faithful. Answer me when I call to God of my righteousness, and now David says this, you have given me relief when I was in distress. Here again, David is not just referring to the faithfulness of God in the abstract. David is referring to the faithfulness of God as David himself had experienced it. David knows that God has been faithful. David knows what he has done, what God has done for David in the past. Therefore, David has confidence in what God will do for him in the future. Note the past tenses, which speak of what took place in the past. Answer me when I call of God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. So be gracious to me and hear my prayer. What God had done in the past was to cause David to become larger. To become larger. King James translates it that way. The house enlarged me when I was in distress. It's a, it's a picture word. And when David talks about being enlarged, ESV translated is relieved, this could mean that God caused David to grow through the past experiences, to be enlarged in the sense of grow bigger. So David could say, through these experiences of you have grown me, you have matured me, you have developed me, I have seen the value of all these sufferings and hardships I have been enlarged. Or it could mean that God enabled him to rise, just like a piece of dough rises, that David rises to the occasion. That is that David is able to do what he cannot do on his own. That God inflates him, if you will. God makes him bigger. God makes him able to withstand what he could not withstand otherwise. But he's talking about this sense of which God has built him up, if you will, as a result of prayer. Whichever the case, David had learned from past experience that he could rely upon God in this present situation. Thirdly, we are confident in prayer because God has pity upon us. Psalm 4, verse 1, ESV. Answer me when I call, O God, of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. King James, O God, of my righteousness, thou hast large me when I was in distress. Have mercy upon me in my prayer. And the NIV, and since I picked on it last time, 
I will now speak of it favorably. Answer me when I call to God of my righteous, uh, oh my righteous God, give me relief, my distress, be merciful to me and hear my prayer. Now on this instance, mercy is better translation than grace. Number one, while grace and mercy are closely connected terms, they are not synonymous. They are not synonymous. Um, in the broadest sense of that word, I suppose you could say they are synonyms, but they have a very important shade of difference. Here's the difference. Grace, as you probably know the definition, is unmerited favor. It refers to the recipient having nothing earned or merited the, the favor that is bestowed. Thus the person who bestows the grace is under no obligation to do so. However, it does not say anything about the condition of the recipient. In contrast, mercy is favored that is bestowed as a result of pity. The emphasis is upon the pitiful condition of the recipient of the mercy. Thus the person who bestows the mercy is moved to do so because of the terrible plight of the person who is the recipient of mercy. So, illustration. I'm going to give you the same illustration I give every time so that hopefully you'll remember it. The difference between grace and mercy. If I had a slew of $100 bills tonight and I just started passing them out, and gave them to everyone that was here, that would be an act of grace. You did not do anything to deserve it. You did not do anything for me. I'm not paying you back for anything you've done. I'm just giving you $100 out of the goodness of my heart. Grace, unmerited. Says nothing about your condition. However, mercy is bestowed when you hear about someone their house has just burned down. Everything went up in smoke. You also know that these people have lost their job. They're penniless. And you look at them and you look at their terrible condition and you're moved with compassion and say, here's $100. I know it's not much, but I hope it helps a little bit. Knowing the condition. Mercy is governed by the condition. Mercy is a result of pity. So David is saying, have mercy upon me in my distress. Look at my dilemma. And not only be gracious to me, but be merciful to me. Have, have pity, have compassion. That God cares about our struggles. That God cares about our anxieties, our griefs, our hardships, that God is moved by them. Which brings us to number two. Because God has set David apart for himself, David knows that God is going to be moved by the plight that David finds himself in, even when that plight is the result of David's own sinfulness. God is going to have pity upon David because David belongs to him. Now this isn't as developed as you get to the New Testament when you have the whole doctrine of adoption and uh, Todd Mangum mentioned adoption at Pinebrook and talked about the love that results from that, et cetera, et cetera. 
But there is a special pity that God has for his own, Psalm 103, verse 12 and following. As far as the east is from the west, so far as you removed our transgressions from us. Like as a father pities his children, so the Lord pities them that fear him. So God has pity. He has pity upon us even in our sinfulness. He removes that sin as far as the east is from the west. Again, if our concept is that I have to get my life in order, in order for God to hear my prayer, if, if I have to get all my ducks in a row, then when I have sinned and blown it, and now I am experiencing the consequences of that sin, and it's horrible, then I have no, no confidence that I'm going to go to God and he's going to hear me. Instead, maybe God's going to rebuke me. Maybe God is going to punish me. Maybe God is going to do something untoward. Now, I can have confidence that I'm going to experience the pity of God because he has set me apart for himself. Because I belong to him. He has chosen to set his love upon me. Therefore, he is going to answer when I pray. B, a father may be sensitive to the suffering of all. However, a father is intensely sensitive to the suffering of his own child. Since God has set us apart from self, he demonstrates great mercy towards us. D, we are confident in prayer because God has a purpose for our lives. But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. God has a vested interest in answering our prayers because he has reasons for separating us to himself. This is especially true of prayers that are in keeping with his will. David has confidence that God will hear his prayers because of God's own namesake. God is going to make promises to David. We're going to see uh, in uh, probably two weeks, I don't know exactly how I'm going to handle chapter 6 yet, but two or three weeks, we're going to get to God's incredible promise to David about David's family and about how there's going to be a king reigning uh, from David's family forever and ever. And he says, I took my love away from Saul. I will not take it away from you. And of course, David is going to do all this hideous stuff in the ensuing chapters. And yet God never removes him from being king. God allows him to continue. God has pity upon David. David doesn't deserve it, but God set him apart for himself. God had a purpose for David being king, namely that, and we saw that last week, that God had set David apart for his people Israel's sake. That David was to be a blessing to God's people. And so God is going to hear David's prayer because God is going to bless his people. He has a reason for blessing David that goes far, far beyond David. And when we understand that we have been separated by God, by his grace, then we also understand he has a purpose for us. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, For by grace are you saved, through faith, that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, 
not of works, lest any man should boast. Next verse, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God before ordained that we should walk in them. God had a purpose in saving us. And God is going to achieve that purpose in us. And because I know that God has set me apart for himself and for his purpose, then I know that he's going to hear and answer my prayers because he wants to achieve his purpose. Even as Psalm 23, for your name's sake. Number four, all too often our prayers do not go beyond our own self-interest or selfish ambition. Number five, nonetheless, God accomplishes his work in this world through answering our prayers. I'll say more about that in just a moment. Application. Our confidence in prayer does not flow from our relationship to God, but rather God's relationship to us. It is not our faithfulness to God, but his faithfulness to us and to himself. It is not about the righteousness which we have earned and deserve a hearing. It is about a righteousness that he provides and the mercy he shows in granting us a hearing. So we can have confidence in prayer because God has set us apart for himself. Number two, knowing that God has set us apart for himself brings carefulness in living. Because God has set us apart for himself, we are to bring honor and glory to him in the way that we live our, our lives. God now rebukes David for dishonoring God. Psalm 4, verse 2. How long shall my honor be turned into shame? Or as translated elsewhere, O sons of men, how long will my honor become a reproach? That which is to bring honor to God, namely his grace, mercy, and love, actually become dishonoring to him when God's people presume upon those attributes. God is viewed as weak and unjust when, we, when he blesses a sinful people. Uh, when Nathan comes and confronts David about David's sinfulness, it's striking. It's striking the offense that God says that David committed. Now remember, he's committed adultery with Bathsheba. Remember that he had Uriah the Hittite killed on the battlefield. And those things are mentioned. But the cornerstone is, Nathan says to David, today you have given occasion in Israel to blaspheme. David, you brought dishonor to God. You gave today people the opportunity to question the goodness and faithfulness of God. Your disobedience was a detriment 
not just to yourself, not just to Uriah, not to Bathsheba. Your disobedience was a detriment to the nation. This nation of whom you're to be a blessing. You turned out to be a pretty poor role model is what Nathan says. Now how does that go with what I just said a moment ago? Well the answer is because God continues to be gracious and merciful to David. But in that grace and that mercy, David becomes keenly aware that he has brought reproach and dishonor to God. When we understand what our salvation is to accomplish, what, what the purpose is for which we are saved, then when we commit sin, it's more than just how does this affect me or more than just what damage does it do to my family. But now the concern is what does this do for God's name? How is God viewed in the community? How is God viewed in the church? How does my life reflect upon the glory of God? Now, God unpacks this. B, note the ways in which God is dishonored by his people. God is dishonored when our lives are lived without appropriate purpose. Oh, man, how long will my... Shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? How long will you love what is worthless? N-A-S. To love that which is worthless is to give ourselves to that which has little purpose or value. It is to waste time which results in a wasted life. Think about that. A wasted time results in a wasted life. In context, it has to do with prayers. All too often our prayers are about our agendas, our desires, and our pleasures, even as I talked about this morning. We pray that it won't raid on our parade. We beseech God that our party won't be spoiled, or that our team will not lose the game, or that we'll hit a home run. When you think about our prayer lives, many times it has very little to do with accomplishing God's purpose and work of asking God to protect us and keep us so that he will not be dishonored, so that we can remain effectual, so that we can be useful for the kingdom's sake. In James chapter 4, verse 3, it says, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. We pray without real meaning and purpose. We pray for good health not so that we can better serve God or fulfill our responsibilities, but merely so that we can feel good. We pray for wealth, not so that we can give to the poor or to further God's kingdom, but merely so that we can be at ease and enjoy life. You see, the oddity about that is not so much that it, it's about what you pray for as much as it is why you pray for it. Why you pray for it. My father, when uh, he 
sold the farm, kept 35 acres, and he had a big hill, and he built a house on top of that uh, hill. And uh, he'd always wanted to build a house there, and he prayed that uh, God would uh, allow him uh, to build this home. And one of his goals, if you will, one of his desires was that that house would be used of the Lord, that, that he could better serve the Lord as a result of the house. And the Lord provided, and he was able to build a, a very, very beautiful home. And one of the things he did was in the basement, instead of having an eight-foot ceiling, he put in an 11-foot ceiling so he could play ping-pong down there and stuff and it wouldn't hit the, the top of the, of the ceiling. He, he wanted a place where the young people could gather. He wanted enough bedrooms so that when missionaries came, they could entertain. So uh, my family always put up the missionaries, the guest speakers, etc., because we had room. And he built it so we'd have room. You probably heard me give this illustration before, but uh, he, the youth group was always welcome over there. And one night we were there, we were having an outdoor campfire, and it was raining. And it got really muddy, and uh, we're, we're soaked. And we ran for the house. And uh, a lot of the kids, instead of going into the basement door, ran into the front door and into the hallway. And there was a very light colored carpet that was now just covered with mud. And I remember one of the youth sponsors said to me, oh, your parents are going to kill us. I said, no. I said, because that's why they wanted this house. And it was true. They didn't get upset. They were happy that their house could be used. It's the why that's behind it. Is what we are aiming at vain and empty and useless? Or is it something valuable? So the question is, David, why do you want me to hear your prayer? This is a time of instruction. Oh, hear me, God, in my distress. David, why do you want me to hear you? Just so that life goes easier? Or so that you can be restored to service? So you can be effectual once again? Why do you pray to me, David? God is dishonored through a lack of thoughtful hatred of sin. Verse 4, be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts upon your bed. Again, it would be easy here to, to jump to Ephesians, where Ephesians says, be angry and sin not, but it's not the same thing. In Ephesians, it's talking about the way to, to uh, handle your anger and and don't hang, hand it in a way that is going to be sinful. Don't let the sun go down upon your wrath. This is different. For notice in Psalm 4, verse 4, it says, Be angry, do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your, on your beds. Consume with your own heart upon your bed. This coming week, we are going to be in uh, 2 Samuel chapter 6. 
And in 2 Samuel chapter 6, David becomes angry with God. And we're going to talk about what happens when a person becomes angry with God. David is angered at God. David is angry. Here, God says, be angry and do not sin. The object of the anger is David's own sinfulness. That David should be angered himself at what he had done. When he's confronted by Nathan and uh, before he's confronted by Nathan uh, um, uh, no, I'm getting my story back. Yes, he's confronted by Nathan and he's, and he's being talked about this woman with her ewe limb and everything and if you remember that account, David becomes angry at what that person is said to have done. God wants that anger that David had towards that other person to be now inward, inward. Do we get angry at ourselves when we sin? Do we get mad at ourselves? Do we say to ourselves, how could you do that? How could you have done that to God? How could you have hurt that other person? Or do we give ourselves a pass? Do we focus on our own grief and our own troubles that there is no time for our own hatred of sin, not in the abstract, in, in us, that we hate our sin and we hate ourselves for sinning. And we desperately would like to be different. That's going to create a different kind of prayer life. If you're longing, hungering, thirsting after righteousness, as the deer pants after the water, and you know the verses. Application. How little value we place on God's advice and counsel. We are to win the argument that rages inside of us. We are to talk ourselves into doing what is right. Number three, knowing that God has set us apart from self brings contentedness in my circumstances. This contentedness is epitomized by relying upon God's goodness and not our own. It is the ability to rejoice in God's favor rather than to be seeking God's favor. Specifically, it is a trust that we are acceptable to God. I tell you, there are so many Christians that are striving and living a very unhappy life because they're trying to win God's favor. They're, they're trying to make God pleased with us. God is pleased with us. We are accepted in the beloved. I was asked two weeks ago to go to Harrisburg and talk about the doctrine of election. I went to Ephesians chapter 1, and Ephesians chapter 1 talks about how we're accepted in the beloved. In Christ, 
in Christ. We are righteous. We're accepted. We are holy. Come boldly under the throne of grace that you may find mercy and help in a time of need. We aren't trying to gain God's favor. We have God's favor. Wake up to it. Realize it. Rejoice in it. Experience that favor. So A, this contentedness is epitomized by relying upon God's goodness and not our own. It is the ability to rejoice in God's favor rather than to seek God's favor. Specifically, it is trust that we are acceptable to God. Offer the sacrifices of righteousness, sacrifices, and put your trust in the Lord. Confident in him in making us righteous. B, there are a great many people who are totally dissatisfied with their lives and fail to see how God has been good to them. There are many who say, who will show us any good? Who will show us any good? Point out one thing in my life for which I ought to be thankful for. My life is the pits. You don't get how awful my life is, how miserable my whole life is, my job, my boss. There are so many people, all they do is gripe and complain, and especially this past year. Christians griping about all kinds of stuff. Just negative, negative, negative. What do I have to rejoice in? What do I have to be happy about? Was the attitude. Who will show us any good? I tell you, the Lord has been good to us. The Lord is good to me. The Lord is good to you. And you need to understand that goodness. See, we need to see God's smiling down upon us. Verse 6, there are many who would say, who show us any good. Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. Sometimes I use that benediction. I think I used it this morning. The Lord bless thee and keep thee. Lord make his face shine upon thee. Lord lift up the light of his countenance upon thee and give thee peace. The light of his countenance. The idea is that God's beaming. God's beaming with a smile. Is that the way you picture God? Smiling down upon you? Pleased with you? Satisfied with you? Accepting you? Wanting to answer your prayers? Lord, let me see your smiling face. Not because the psalmist is seeking to change God's face from a frown to a smile, but because it's hidden. He doesn't see it, but he knows it's there. He knows that God is smiling down upon him. David knows that he is favored. David knows that he will be blessed. David knows that God is going to hear him in his time of distress. D, knowing that God has set us apart for himself is a source of greater joy 
than any material prosperity or physical pleasure could ever be. You have put joy in my heart more than when their grain and wine abound. Now David is contrasting himself with the ungodly around him. When do the ungodly rejoice? Answer, when they have grain, when they have wine, when they have an abundance, they're happy. David says, you put more joy in my heart than when their wine and their grain increased. I don't envy them, David says, because I have your favor. Because you will hear when I call unto you. You will help me. E. Knowing that God has set us apart brings a quiet confidence to life. In peace, I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. There is no greater security than knowing that the Lord has set us apart for himself. The Lord is my keeper. The Lord is the shade upon my right hand. He who keeps thee will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. It's vain to rise up early and to sit up late. And so he gives his beloved sleep. What keeps us awake at night? What do we worry about? What are our fears? And then, how do we expect those fears to go away? How do we expect them to dissipate? What will it take for us to stop fearing? When will we feel secure? How much money do we have to have in the bank to really feel secure? That I can handle whatever may come my way. How new does my car have to be to feel secure? How long do I have to be at a job that I feel like now I'm going to be provided for for the next X number of years. David said, you alone make me to dwell in safety. You're my only source of security, David says. We are told in investments, never put all your eggs in one basket because something terrible and untoward can happen. That stock you hold, that company can go bankrupt. A lot of terrible things can happen. We're to have all of our eggs in one basket. But it's God's basket. It's God's basket. We are to say to ourselves as we lie on our bed, I belong to him. Because he chose me to belong to him. Because he chose me to belong to him, I can do nothing 
that will destroy that relationship. Because I didn't initiate it. I didn't beg him to take me in. He chose me before the foundation of the world. He set me apart for himself. And because he set me apart for himself, he will watch over me. So, we can sleep. Even in the midst of dangers and turmoil. And you know the Psalms. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of my enemies. All the enemies stand around and the psalmist is having a picnic. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked came upon me to eat up my flesh, they stumbled and fell. Though a host should camp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war should rise against me, in this will I be confident. One thing have I desired of the Lord, that will I seek after. That I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, and behold the beauty of the Lord and inquire in his temple. Peace comes from David by dwelling in God's house, by dwelling upon God's word, about reminding himself of who God is. David has confidence that God will hear his prayer. David guards his life because God has set him apart for himself. And David can sleep at night. So conclusion, knowing that God has set me apart for himself brings confidence in prayer. He will hear. He will hear. He will hear you. Pray. Pray. Should you confess your sin? Yes, you should. But he will, he will hear you. He will hear you. Knowing that God has set us apart for himself brings carefulness in living. It's a whole new motivation. A whole new motivation for living a righteous life. Not wanting to dishonor him. Not wanting to be a reproach to his name. Not wanting to be a bad example for others. Worrying about what I do and the effect it has on somebody else. Thirdly, knowing that God has set us apart for himself brings contentedness in my circumstances. God will supply our needs. When there are no cattle in the stalls, when there is no grain in the fields, when it's all bare, we can have confidence in God. That's what it means. The Lord has set apart us for himself. Let us pray. Almighty God, we thank you that you are our God and we are your people. We are thankful that you have set us apart for yourself. That we can say, hear us, O God. When I was in stress, thou hast mercy upon me and heard my prayer. O Lord, may we take the chastisement. How long will you turn my glory into shame? Lord, forgive us. Forgive us. for our sinfulness that reproaches you. Forgive us for being discontent. 
Forgive us for being complainers and whiners. Lord, may we not be numbered among those that say, who will show us any good? Lord, may we be quick to acknowledge your goodness, your protection, your blessedness to us. And what a privilege it is to be yours and to be able to come to your house of worship and to sing praise into your name. Thank you for accepting us when on our own we would be unacceptable. That you receive the, the praise from our lips when just hours before from those very same lips have come forth things that dishonor you. Thank you for the Lord Jesus and our relationship to you solely based upon him. Thank you for sending your son to take away our sin, to take away our approach, reproach in order to make us a part of your family so you would bless us for all eternity. And we know that one day we will be in your presence accepted, loved, welcomed. Lord, may we realize that tonight. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you.